Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. With increasing talk of de-dollarization and Gulf attempts to get more influence on the IMF, it's a good time to talk about the world's international financial institutions and the future of globalization is the world forming into blocks, which will be more interested in regionalization. I'm joined today by Jamie Martin, and he's written a book, The Meddlers, Sovereignty, Empire, and the Birth of Global Economic Governance, that looks at a lot of the background to all of this. And uh, first of all, welcome to you. Thank you so much for having me. And, you know, your book is interesting because it it, it goes back uh, to the First World War and makes the argument that uh, a lot of the global financial institutions that people think basically established after the Second World War, there were sort of traces of them earlier on. That's, that's your argument. Can you, can you run us through that? Yeah, absolutely. So the Meddlers essentially is a political history of the origins and evolution of the very first international institutions that attempted to govern the world economy. And as you mentioned, there's really been a kind of general assumption for quite a long time that the origins of global economic governance as we know it date to the Bretton Woods Conference of 1944, when representatives of over 40 countries met um, uh, during the Second World War to essentially rewrite the wor- rules of the world economy and to create new institutions to attempt to stabilize a world economy that had been so profoundly unsettled by the Great Depression and by the Second World War. So the idea is that these representatives kind of meeting in a, a New Hampshire town essentially create these two new uh international institutions, which remain with us today, right? The International Monetary Fund or the IMF uh, and the World Bank. And the idea here is that these institutions are really kind of doing something very new under the sun. They're bringing together kind of powerful governmental figures from around the world to try to bring some kind of collective stabilization um, of the world economy to provide states uh, experiencing balance of payments problems with financial assistance to kind of channel resources to post-war reconstruction and economic development. Now, Bretton Woods was clearly an enormously significant event in the history of the world economy, in the history of uh, the 20th century and so on. But what I argue in my book is that it's actually something more of a kind of a midway point in a longer story. It's not the origins of global economic governance at all. Um, And in fact, the first time that states, private actors, empires had come together to try to superintend the global capitalist economy um, began a few decades before this point. And these kind of originary efforts really emerge out of the First World War, not the second. Talk us through what happened at the end of the First World War in terms of the establishment of 
global structures to deal with the economy. Yeah, so it might be helpful even just to to move back a little bit before the First World War itself. The years before the First World War were an enormously vibrant uh, period of time in the world economy. It's a period of time in which global volumes of trade are growing exponentially, in which the world's global finan- the world's financial systems have kind of been knit together through the medium of the gold standard, where new technologies like the steamship and the railroad are allowing for goods to be moved around the world uh, at an at a, at a extraordinary rate. It's also a period of time um, at which colonial empires are expanding uh, rapidly. Uh, and uh, it's certainly not the case that um, as the world economy is being knit together, uh, that it's being knit together, um, let's say, through the kind of um, uh, voluntary uh, agreement of everyone. It's a period of time in which the kind of um, uh, domination of empires and the integration of the world economy are really kind of evolving hand in hand. What happens in the First World War is that this uh, kind of world economy, this highly integrated world economy, uh, experiences a major shock, right? Tariffs are raised, exchange controls are implemented, the kind of sinews of global exchange are weaponized by competing blockades. Um, uh, The world economy is still highly interdependent during the First World War, a fact that often uh, uh, is misremembered. But nonetheless, the kind of uh, pre-war system of uh, uh, belief in the, 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 the idea that kind of um, liberalism and exchange would kind of uh, bring the world together into this kind of uh, pacific system of global exchange, um, this is thrown into turmoil by the First World War. And so what you see happening in the wake of the First World War are a series of concerted efforts by many different players to try to piece back together something like uh, the world economy uh, that had existed before the war. And as part of this process, you see the emergence of a series of new international institutions that perform a variety of functions that will, uh, you know, that, that seem very similar or, or would appear very familiar to us today. They're making financial bailout loans that are conditional on domestic schemes of austerity. They're channeling finance for schemes of economic development on the national level. They're attempting to regulate commodity prices and production in the way that OPEC does today. They're facilitating the cooperation of independent central banks. So all of these kinds of functions that characterize global economic governance today first emerge in the aftermath of the First World War as part of a series of efforts to kind of stabilize this world economy that had been thrown into such turmoil um, by the Great War. And who was actually doing it at the end of the First World War, what were those institutions? So at the kind of head of these institutions, uh, I think it would be safe to say, was the League of Nations. Now, the League of Nations is kind of generally remembered today as something of a laughing stock, as an institution um, that failed to prevent the coming of the Second World War, that was kind of born out of the vision of Woodrow Wilson, uh, but then rejected entirely by the U.S. Congress, right? Um, but what I and other uh, scholars have really attempted to argue is that actually the League of Nations, certainly in the financial realm um, was uh, at certain moments enormously powerful and enormously innovative. And uh, during the early 1920s, the League of Nations makes a series of financial bailout loans to some of its member states, particularly new states that had emerged in Central and Eastern Europe after the First World War um, that are designed to allow these states to stabilize their finances, to kind of bring hyperinflationary conditions under control, and so on and so forth. And uh, 
one thing that is so kind of important over the long term about these loans is the way in which they're uh, essentially designed to get these states to commit to quite um, thoroughgoing domestic programs of fiscal austerity. Uh, They're designed to uh, kind of get these states to remove central banks from political control and to do a variety of things that look very similar to much later kind of IMF style conditional bailout loans. Um, It's uh, uh, essentially one of the uh, contentions of the book is that kind of uh, what the IMF would later become infamous for doing Uh, much later in the 20th century, is really debuted at this moment by the League of Nations. Uh, In addition to the League of Nations, uh, 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 the Bank for International Settlements, which still exists today and is a very kind of influential uh, international financial institution, um, is born uh, uh, as well at the end of the 1920s and the beginning of the 1930s. There's also uh, a variety of intergovernmental commodity organizations that essentially, as I mentioned, look very similar to OPEC, uh, which also emerged during this period. So there's a whole kind of ecosystem of institutions. Um, but again, I think it would be safe to say that really kind of um, uh, kind of uh, leading the pack is the League of Nations. And when you when you put it like that, is you know it's very striking because all those protests against the IMF were about its interference in the democratic practices or the, you know, the sort of sovereign practices of, of the country of its clients. So put it like this: What were the differences between what the League of Nations were doing and what happened in '44? Well, I mean, one thing uh, uh, certainly is that when the IMF was established, in fact, uh, many believed that the IMF and the way that it would make resources available to member states undergoing financial difficulties was that it was actually going to do something very different, that it wasn't going to attach these kind of strict conditions to its loans, um, that uh, it would uh, kind of get away from some of these practices that actually had made the League of Nations financial scheme so unpopular among member states. And in fact, John Maynard Keynes, who is one of the you know, principal designers of the Bretton Woods system, the kind of world famous British economist and who leads the British team of negotiators at the uh, Bretton Woods conference, he insists that the IMF cannot, uh, as it's kind of emerging, cannot adopt these kinds of heavy handed bullying practices. But he realizes shortly after the Bretton Woods conference, and in fact, just before his own death, that the IMF, which was designed to allow its U.S. representatives to have disproportionate power, that the IMF was likely to, in fact, uh, adopt these practices, essentially telling states that if they wanted uh, uh, help, if they wanted access to the institution's resources, that they'd have to do specific things on the domestic level cut public spending, raise interest rates, things like this. And what you see happening is that the IMF, even as it's not yet the institution it would become later, even as it doesn't play as central role in the uh, global economy, nonetheless, um, over the 1950s, begins to readopt precisely these practices that had been debuted by the League of Nations. So again, when the IMF is born, essentially, there's a broad sense that it's going to do things differently, but it ends up recapitulating these old practices. And then by the end of the 20th century, uh, again, as I mentioned, this is one of the things that makes this institution so powerful, but also so infamous around the world. And what's your explanation, or was Keynes's explanation as well, as to why that happened? Was it due to the big powers seeking advantage over the their client countries or was it 
you know another economic you know was it was there more economic theory and and justification for what was going on? I, my view is that uh, it actually doesn't have as much to do with kind of high level economic theory or something like that, but that instead what's happening is that a very kind of old style of uh, what I refer to, borrowing a term from a, another historian, a, a very old style of banker's diplomacy is coming back to the fore. There's this very old idea um, that essentially, if you're a private bank making a loan to a state that's seen as you know, unlikely to repay or is politically unstable or something like that, that you may well have to uh, attach very significant conditions to these loans. And in the 19th century, there uh, uh, in, in states that defaulted on loans um, from Egypt to the Ottoman Empire to states in the Caribbean and Central America and so on, that uh, very powerful banks in the city of London and in Wall Street created various mechanisms for intervening quite deeply in their uh, domestic, economic, and even political realms to ensure that if they were to borrow money, they would be kind of, you know, that they would that they would repay it, right? That they would kind of, uh, they, their kind of full sovereignty over their own economies would be removed or, or attenuated um, uh, to facilitate the repayment of the loans. Now, the League of Nations, as I demonstrate, kind of adopts and slightly transforms these practices. And then the IMF, when it's born, as I mentioned, um, you know, it's kind of not supposed to do this. But what ultimately happens, I think, is that the return of this kind of old set of practices and the old set of, this old set of assumptions about, what international lending from major uh, banks and, and Wall Street and elsewhere requires. And it requires that the recipient of these loans, or at least some of the recipients of these loans, essentially, uh, in exchange for uh, the capital, give up their full control over how their economies are to function. Yeah, but what I'm getting at is that is that an expression of, let's put it like this, colonial, you know, or, or sort of post-colonial attitudes in the West, uh, in the big powers, or is it because it makes sense for the, these loans to be repaid? Well, look, I guess the way I would put it uh, in response to that question is that there's a way in which powerful um, uh, uh, financial institutions in the West have kind of worked uh, with states to essentially um, uh, kind of create arrangements that on the, in the kind of uh, view of these financial institutions uh, make it safer for them to lend money to riskier borrowers. Uh, and uh, again, despite the fact that the IMF was kind of theoretically supposed to move past some of these uh, bullying practices, the fact that the IMF as it's created is overwhelmingly dominated by the U.S. government means that in response to pressures, let's say, from domestic financial institutions, U.S. government representatives uh, were able to kind of um, uh, uh, kind of push the institution in the direction that they wanted. And so in a certain sense, yes, there is this kind of reemergence of these kind of practices of informal financial imperialism, essentially, at this institution that had kind of deep legacies out of these earlier contexts that I chart in the book. Exactly. So it's very interesting. So if you take the 1918 and 1944 key moments, that then how much of 18 was informed by, you know, what were then very much existing and, and sort of even growing empires? Yeah. And yeah. 44, when there was this, you know, mood of decolonization. Yeah. So did that feed 
through at all to the people designing these systems. So absolutely. So in the case of the post-First World War moment, the archival record is abundantly clear. Officials in the League of Nations, when they were designing these kind of new practices of making uh, bailout loans, essentially, they looked back to institutions that had existed in the 19th century, not international institutions, because there weren't any powerful international financial institutions. But instead, these uh, kind of uh, essentially what were referred to as debt commissions that had been set up in places like Tunis and Egypt and North Africa and the Ottoman Empire in Balkan states like Greece and, and Serbia and in states in the Caribbean and Central America like Nicaragua and elsewhere. And the way that these debt commissions functioned was essentially that they allowed representatives of foreign banks to be put into very powerful institutions within these states, um, allowed them to kind of exercise control over sources of public revenue and in some cases to exercise control over decisions about public finance. And at the time, these were widely recognized as tools of informal empire, um, uh, tools that allowed powerful foreign empires and uh, uh, powerful foreign banks to exercise uh, incredible influence over these other states and, and kind of how they did business. So again, the League of Nations uh, adopts these practices. They understand uh, uh, themselves as doing this. The thing that's supposed to be different about the League of Nations is that it's an international institution that grants membership to the states concerned. So, for example, when the League makes a very kind of heavy-handed uh, or places very heavy-handed conditions on a financial bailout loan to Austria, the key difference here is that Austria is a member state. Um, so it's supposed to this kind of the, the fact of membership itself and the fact that uh, some form of representation is given is supposed to make this arrangement less kind of outrightly imperial. But the continuities, again, are kind of obvious to everyone. Now, in the 1940s as well, as I mentioned, there is a strong sense among many of the people involved that the IMF can't act like the league, right? That, as you mentioned, there's a kind of, uh, it, it just somehow seems kind of out of step um, uh, in many ways. And part of this is because uh, the British uh, representatives at Bretton Woods worry that the British Empire itself has lost so much power during uh, the Second World War and has become so much of a global debtor that Britain itself uh, could potentially be treated by the United States as this kind of weak, you know, only semi-sovereign state that doesn't kind of, um, uh, you know, that, that shouldn't be expected to enjoy the full rights of sovereignty. So there's this deep anxiety among British officials about uh, whether the U.S. government in designing the Bretton Woods institutions um, is going to treat the British Empire itself as a kind of traditional object of U.S. financial imperialism, namely a Latin American state, right? For decades, the United States uh, and Wall Street banks had, um, you know, interacted with Latin American republics in ways that kind of reflected uh, these practices, right? That you kind of get capital in exchange for sovereignty. And so there's this deep kind of anxiety, as I mentioned, among British officials uh, uh, that this is something that Britain too might have to face. I mean, it's remarkable to read the documents and to see these metaphors being deployed. Um, so again, it's the British who push very, very forcefully to try to keep the IMF from ever being able to develop these powers. But almost as soon as the Bretton Woods Conference is over, almost as soon as the Second World War itself comes to a conclusion, the IMF slowly but surely readopts very similar practices to those that had characterized these earlier arrangements. 
as you move forward from the 40s and 50s and 60s, is there a, is there a sort of new period where the IMF uh, becomes less important, perhaps, and, and things develop in a different way? But nonetheless, these structures, I suspect you're going to tell us, of big power financial control over the, the, the client states still exists. How, how does it develop as we get to, towards the current day? Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned briefly in passing, the IMF during the 1950s, you know, it's not playing as central a role in the world economy as, as some had kind of uh, expected it might during the 1940s. However, over time, uh, it comes to play a much more significant role. And in a kind of paradoxical way, it actually um, develops much greater powers after the breakdown of the Bretton Woods system itself, right? The IMF was created um, to kind of, you know, oversee and and make possible this new international monetary system that was uh, essentially designed at, at the Bretton Woods Conference. Um, but it's only after the breakdown of Bretton Woods that the institution uh, begins to play a much more kind of uh, important global role as a lender and as an institution that was designed to essentially guarantee the stabilization of the global um, financial system by making these huge bailout loans. Um, and really, the IMF kind of comes into its own, let's say, uh, during the 1980s um, first, uh, during a period when many states around the world are undergoing extreme debt distress, when there's a period of defaults in many different places in Latin America and Africa and elsewhere. Um, in part precipitated by the so-called Fokker shock in the United States when interest rates are raised uh, uh, dramatically in order to contain domestic U.S. inflation. Um, so the IMF kind of comes in again into this new position of global influence by making loans to these states um, that are conditional on quite, you know, again, kind of quite demanding um, uh, 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 reforms uh, domestically. Then at the end of the Cold War, the IMF plays a very important role in uh, essentially facilitating the transition of many, many formerly communist um, uh, uh, kind of Soviet republics um, to capitalism, right? Um, uh, the kind of arrival of, of money doctors to Russia and then the kind of quote-unquote shock therapy that the institution plays a role in overseeing in, in Russia um, are among some of the most kind of uh, infamous decisions that the institutions made. Um, then in the late 1990s, during the so-called Asian financial crisis that began in 1997, the institution also plays a very important role in providing uh, bailout loans to states like South Korea, um, Indonesia, uh, uh, Thailand, um, and others. But really, uh, uh, the kind of the, the institution's track record in handling the fallout from this late 1990s crisis, um, the fact that it seems to be prescribing very harsh medicine that's actually not appropriate for um, the uh, the crises that many of these states are facing, this plays a role in really tarnishing the uh, institution's reputation. Um, but actually, uh, it kind of, you know, maybe it, 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 it doesn't make as many loans after this point for several years, but uh, it, it doesn't go away, right? It reemerges during the crisis faced by Greece uh, after the 2008 financial crisis. And today it plays quite a significant role, um, perhaps not one that's not as kind of loud or as prominent as in earlier eras, but, uh, you know, in, in places undergoing major financial distress today, like Sri Lanka and uh, Pakistan and, and elsewhere, it still performs this kind of unique role as providing financial bailout loans essentially to any state or almost any state around the world um, that asks for them. 
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Right, now we're trying to talk about this in terms of globalization, and you've really described a situation where we've had a century, maybe with a bit of blip in the late 40s and early 50s, as a you know, rather more idealistic approach was attempted. Uh, but you're talking about a century plus of continuity in terms of this approach, am I right? Yeah, I mean, I I wouldn't want to say that kind of nothing new is under the sun, that there's no change. I mean, obviously, there's change, there's enormous change. Um, But I do, uh, you are right to say that one of the contentions of my book is that across these, this period of enormous change, when the world economy uh, has, you know, undergoes a series of, of enormous crises, that there are continuities. And as a historian, I'm always kind of, you know, inclined to try to uh, get behind dominant narratives, um, uh, narratives that are kind of repeated, uh, sometimes at nauseum, and to look for these kind of more, let's say, kind of uh, kind of more subtle or um, less obvious um, continuities. And I think in this case, it, it actually has a kind of um, important normative upshots that, you know, one way that people have understood the IMF and the kind of um, backlash that it's generated over the last 30 years is by seeing um, the institution as kind of leaving behind, as you put it, these kind of, you know, idealistic um, uh, period in, in, you know, the ideals of this period when it was created, the mid 20th century, the kind of era of Keynesianism and the New Deal and a time when kind of um, things were to be done differently. And actually, I think that um, uh, there's something that's really missed in that story. And that if you look over this longer history, actually, what you can see the IMF doing at this period is really simply kind of readopting almost a kind of a default way of operating. Um, that's long characterized the way that powerful financial institutions and great powers um, per- have treated particularly states on the so-called peripheries of the world economy. And if we can see how the institution has kind of emerged and evolved out of this longer and deeper history of empire, then we can see how you know accusations of the institution kind of acting in a way that you know, is imperialistic. We can see how that's not just metaphor, right? That there's actual kind of historical um, depth to that criticism. Yes, I, I, can't, I can see that. But I'm going to go back to a question which I sort of asked earlier and just sort of try and press you on it, which is if, if this has been going on for a century, despite an attempt in the 40s and 50s to uh, take a different approach, does that suggest there's no alternative? Or is it just a lack of imagination amongst the people running these financial institutions or self-interest and power that is driving this, um, this approach? No, I wouldn't say that that means that there's no alternative. And in right. fact, you know, as we, as we spoke about, Keynes designed an alternative, right? And, and people kind of, you know, in the context of the 1940s thought that an alternative was feasible and possible, but they faced opposition, right? And in fact, the strongest opponents to the Bretton Woods system were Wall Street institutions. And these Wall Street institutions saw that, you know, if Keynes's designs were to be implemented, that this would pose a risk to the way that they did business. And at this moment in the context of, you know, the the mid-1940s, it's a moment at which Wall Street is uh, kind of temporarily 
um, less influential in the United States. The Roosevelt administration is kind of notoriously antagonistic to Wall Street. The kind of center of power is in Washington at this point, not in New York in the way that it had been in earlier eras. But Wall Street is able slowly but surely to kind of reemerge into a position of uh, enormous influence over how decisions of economic diplomacy are made in the United States. And this is absolutely the case today, right? Um, so, I mean, one kind of basic point would be, uh, uh, one kind of basic takeaway point would be that insofar as institutions of global economic governance, which are designed to, you know, uh, kind of uh, uh, provide global public goods, right, insofar as these institutions are very kind of deeply tied to private investment banks in Wall Street or the City of London or elsewhere, it's very unlikely that these institutions will do business differently, right? Um, and that what we see happening, kind of returning over and over again, again, as I mentioned, is this kind of old tradition of bankers diplomacy. And uh, that's the kind of story of continuity that I'm telling, that yep. these powerful financial institutions have been able for quite a long time now to kind of um, mobilize these institutions for to, to act in ways that they feel are appropriate, despite the uh, opposition that they faced, which at moments have been powerful and at other moments um, hasn't been. I think in journalistic terms, yeah, sort of not uh, proper historians like you, there have been a lot of association between neoliberalism and globalization. Uh, but do, are you saying that that overlooks these deeper trends and sort of longer standing trends that you've identified? How do you, how do you fit neoliberalism into your story? It's a great question. So neoliberalism and the kind of rise of this kind of new or um, kind of newly powerful, let's say, set of very thoroughgoing liberal policy ideas in the late 20th century is absolutely crucial for, you know, uh, kind of uh, uh, facilitating this, let's say, this kind of new era um, for institutions like the IMF, right? The kind of conditions that they insist on at this moment are different uh, from those of earlier eras, the way that uh, the institution kind of presses, let's say, on, on South Korea or in Indonesia to, you know, commit to these very thorough going programs of domestic reform for kind of, you know, uh, disestablishing state monopolies, for liberalizing finance, removing capital controls, doing all kinds of things. Look, neoliberal policy ideas are very important. However, what I am trying to say is that we can't see what the IMF is doing in the late 20th century simply as a product of this kind of um, economics, this paradigm shift in economics and in policy ideas. Because if we see that, then we think, again, that this kind of way of doing business is emerges first at this moment in the late 20th century as these new economists kind of gain footholds in these institutions or whatever, you know, it might be. Um, instead, neoliberalism is significant, but it's not the it's not the old story here. And that these kind of the basic rudiments of these practices long predate the emergence of neoliberalism. Yeah, exactly. So, so now then, if, if you, I mean, you, we, we had a brief email exchange before doing this, and you were, you were you know, making the point quite rightly, you're a historian and don't want to sort of end up speculating uselessly about the future <laughs> uh, in a sort of uh, you know, shallow journalistic way. <laughs> but Ch China is challenging the system, and it's becoming more important as an international financial player. Is it doing it differently? It's a great question. And uh, I think the jury's out a little bit on this. 
What we've absolutely seen uh, over the last several years is the rise of China as the largest official kind of bilateral creditor in the world. And by and large, as China kind of stepped into this role, and I use China here, to, you know, as kind of capturing an array of different actors, you know, banks, the, the, the state, and so on and so forth. But I kind of use it for simplicity's sake. Um, but again, as we saw kind of China emerge into this role of, of enormous global lender, by and large, it, it did so uh, first for the sake of these development loans, right? The kind of Belt and Road Initiative, uh, huge infrastructure loans um, to states around the world and in Africa and Latin America and elsewhere. What we've also seen um, more recently is the way in which China has also begun to uh, uh, make loans for the sake of uh, uh, kind of IMF style bailout, right? Kind of financial rescue loans, not long-term development loans, but again, these kind of um, stabilization loans. Now, uh, uh, how you narrate, the reason I say the kind of the jury's out and how you narrate this story kind of depends on where um, you, you know, kind of at what point you kind of begin and end your narrative. Because right now, um, uh, you know, if we were speaking two years ago, we would probably speak about the kind of future of Chinese overseas lending practices quite differently from how we would do so now um, uh, after you know, quite a while of, of, of um, significant uh, economic instability and uncertainty in China about um, the country's kind of future global role as lender. However, it certainly uh, is true that China, as it stepped into this role of global creditor, described what it was doing as entirely different from these old uh, practices that it associated with uh, the IMF and with kind of Western governments and uh Kind of traditions of, of Western imperialism, right? It's, it, it didn't insist on these same kinds of conditions. It didn't insist on states committing to certain kind of policy um, uh, orientations in order to receive capital. Now, as many states began to undergo kind of um, new financial distress in the aftermath of the COVID pandemic, as the U.S. Federal Reserve and other uh, central banks began to raise interest rates, it turned out actually that um, uh, uh, China kind of um, in uh, renegotiating uh, debt and reaching settlements with its debtors actually did kind of, you know, believe it or not, act in, in many ways as a kind of traditional lender, right? Um, so at that moment as well, there was great uncertainty about whether these kinds of commitments that China would kind of act entirely different from Western lenders, there was great uncertainty whether this would actually turn out to be the case. Um, but it certainly is the case that, you know, China has, in addition to this, attempted to create new international financial institutions that would do business differently, in part out of a recognition that in the so-called Bretton Woods institutions, the disproportionate power of the U.S. government uh, meant that China would never have as much influence in these institutions as the size of its economy uh, on its own should, you know, dictate, right? Um, so, it may well be the case that over the kind of medium to long term, uh, the rise of a more multipolar um, global system, the creation of new international institutions that reflect the new distribution of power in the world economy, this might you know, uh, create conditions that uh, really force business to be done differently and, and force perhaps even the IMF and other kind of U.S.-dominated institutions to change how they do business as they face competitors um, uh, uh, to their, uh, uh, you know, to their their power and their their influence. However, again, I I I I hesitate to speculate too much about the future because 
you know, over the last few years, it's been a period of such enormous uh, flux, right, and crisis in the world economy, where the second you kind of put your foot down and, 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 and try to describe precisely what's happening, and precisely how the balance of power is shifting, something new comes that uh, forces you to adjust your priors. Um, but I do think, again, that there is, the, uh, there is a shift of power underway. And if new competitors to these Western-dominated institutions actually develop uh, enough clout and amass enough resources, that this could represent something new um, indeed. Yeah, sure. But I mean, you know, as a, as a sort of being rather skeptical about it, perhaps one, one, you know, one way of, you know, and, and you can't speculate, but one, one way of looking ahead is that, yeah, I mean, China will develop its own institutions, it will become a major international lender, and it will do exactly what the IMF did in trying to get its money back. Yeah, I think that that, that that absolutely could well be the case, right? I mean, again, as I've tried to mention here, as I have mentioned, the persistence of this way of doing business is, is um, uh, you know, this style of banker's diplomacy um, is incredible. And there's absolutely reason to believe that should uh, new international institutions emerge under the kind of um, tutelage of another great power, that they'll do business in this way as well. Um, so that absolutely could be the case, kind of despite the protestations of the Chinese state, that the way that China acts as a global lender is different. Sure. And, and just finally, on the nature of globalization, I mean, the story you've told today of, of the role of these international financial institutions is obviously an important part of, of the globalization story. But yeah, there are other bits of it, like communication and you know possibilities of... Uh, transport and trade and all, all those yeah there's so many bits to it aren't there how big a bit is your bit it's a good question um it depends again on which kind of period of globalization you're looking at right if we're talking about the so-called first wave of globalization spanning the end of the 19th the beginning of the 20th century um international institutions play at best a tiny marginal role um, in the period uh, following the end of the Second World War, it takes uh, some time for international institutions to step into their own. Um, from the late nineteenth, from the late twentieth century into the early twenty-first century, um, I think they play quite a significant role. Um, and over time, uh, uh, they have uh, uh, they've kind of evolved slowly uh, but surely. Um, but essentially, as soon as they appear onto the world stage at the end of the First World War, they never go away. Right. Um, these institutions are uh, incredibly useful um, and they perform important roles. Right. There's reasons why we want to have these institutions performing some kind of role of lender of last resort, of channeling capital to where, you know, private lenders might not want to provide it, so on and so forth. So I think the future in many ways absolutely belongs to these institutions, even as we kind of supposedly undergo a period right now of, quote unquote, deglobalization where the kind of appetite for international cooperation is perhaps lower than it has been at other moments in the past, um, these institutions have incredible staying power. And, uh, you know, they kind of come into and out of um, prominence, uh, depending on which way the political winds are blowing, but they'll stick around. I think uh, I, would, I would be safe to make that prediction, even as a historian who's reluctant to prognosticate too much. I got you there in the end, <laughs> making a prediction. Thank you very much indeed. It's been very interesting to listen to you uh, describe you know, this broad sweep of time and uh, obviously the result of, of an awful lot of research you must have done. <laughs>